0: Take your Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy 32 tonight. It's 173 if you're using a red Bible or pew Bible in front of you. We're going to cover a lot of the chapter, at least survey-wise, but we're going to read just the first five verses to start with tonight. Deuteronomy 32, 1-5. Moses writes, and you'll notice the Bible, it's going to call this, my Bible has headings, and the verse before chapter 32 says the song of Moses. And you'll see it says that in verse 30 of chapter 31, that Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. Now we don't know the tune, it's a long song, but they don't, their music wasn't quite like ours. But here's what the song says. Now keep in mind, this is the song that's going to remind them of what they should be like and what they should be concerned about as they enter the promised land. Okay. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. He's speaking very seriously because he's calling on heaven and earth to be these two witnesses. It's like a court case, and these are the two people... Heavens and earth, so to speak, that are witnesses to what he's going to say as being true. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock. That's our theme tonight. You can circle it, because we're going to talk about it five different passages in this chapter. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without any iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. This very verse Paul the Apostle quotes in Philippians 2.15 about some in his day. So let me set you the framework so that the application can be real and And really powerful and incisive in our life tonight. This is the last sermon of Moses' life. He struck the rock when he should have spoke to it. He is being banned from going in and being the leader to lead them through the promised land. In this very chapter, Joshua is going to be in front of everyone, anointed, and take his place. So this is the last sermon of Moses' life. Um, He's 120 years old. He will die shortly after this. This is kind of like what Second Timothy is to the Apostle Paul and matthew twenty five and four and twenty five were to Jesus. It's kind of the last major discourse that they speak uh, before they die. Again, this is what Moses wants to leave his people. I don't know if you've ever read the final words of people and they want to leave, so to speak, a last will and testament. they want to tell you what's the most important thing on their mind that they could possibly share with you before they're gone, and this would be it for Moses. Um, And it's called a song. Now, interestingly enough, just to give you a little theology of biblical songs, most of the time songs follow battles. This time it precedes one that is prophetically in the future. Um, They usually describe, for Bible characters, songs or for people who are describing The greatness of God because he has provided victory for them. And you don't need to turn there tonight. But Moses wrote two songs that we know of. Probably more than that. But two of them are recorded for us in scripture. One is found, if you want to make a notation, in Exodus 15. These two songs framework his entire 40 year ministry. Exodus 15 is the first song and he describes it as a victory song, a salvation song, where God conquered the Egyptian army of Pharaoh and all the chariots and horses were thrown into the sea. And the whole thing is about how God and how great he is and giving them the victory and wiping out the army they thought for sure would be the end of them at the Red Sea. And so Exodus 15, when Moses first starts out the Exodus, he writes this song. Now he's coming to the end of his life, and the end of the exodus, on the other end of the whole thing, 40 years later, he writes this song. And you kind of think, because they're going in the promised land, they've got a new leader, uh, he's going to say something really positive. He's going to give them a lot of encouragement. I mean, wouldn't you think that would be really right? I mean, they're going to face, and by the way, they already know this, because they've been in there one time. Remember, they had to go out in 40 more years in the desert, the whole thing. So they know that they're going to face giants, giant people giant cities walls that are fortified they've dug up Jericho and the walls were thick enough that you could drive have chariot races of two chariots side by side I mean that's how thick the walls were and formidable so they knew this wasn't going to happen in their own power and strength and it was going to be a tall order for them and so you'd think that he'd be saying something very positive and encouraging but this song the second one the last one the ending of the Exodus song. It's not anything like that. It is a song of really prophesied about how bad they're going to turn out and what God's going to have to do to them in discipline and judgment and how they're going to be defeated by those people. And it's not very, uh, can I say it, encouraging. So why? Here's my thought. I read the whole thing and I go like... <laughs> You're going to end up doing this, and I know that you're rebellious, and you're going, to not, you're going to worship other gods, and you're going to go away from me, and I'm going to have to bring them in, and they're going to slaughter you, and I'm going to have to help you and bring you back. I mean, this is what he's saying to them, and you can read the whole thing for yourself. So my question is why? Why would Moses do this? Why would God inspire Moses to write this to them? Here's why. Can I give you an application right off the bat? Because they might have thought going into the conquest of Canaan that their biggest problem was the things that they could see. They might have thought it was the Goliaths of the land and the giant warriors they would face and the fierce armies and people. They might have thought it was the Jerichos and the gigantic cities and the walls that looked impregnable and impossible to get into to defeat the enemies. And they would have thought perhaps that their biggest enemy and the main issue that they faced was going to be big enemies, big giants. But Moses is telling them this, and this is a lesson that we often forget, is that isn't your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is not a military one. He's going to say all the way out throughout Deuteronomy 32. It's an idolatry one. He's going to say that not, your problem is not mainly about who you are fighting against, but making sure about who you're fighting for. He's going to tell them that their main enemy was not a war issue, but a worship issue. He's going to speak to them in no uncertain terms that their greatest need was not having a strong hand, but having a strong heart. And I think that sometimes, because problems in our lives mount up, And we have financial pressure and we have relational issues and conflicts, and we go to work and it doesn't get any better. And we come home sometimes and there's no relief from it. And we have things that we have to work through with our children, and how are we going to pay for college? And we have a diagnosis from the doctor that's anything but good. And you begin to think that your biggest problems are that mountain of bills you have to pay, or trying to work out that problem with your spouse, or how am I going to tell this to my boss? And you begin to think about that those are the biggest things that you face. And God says this, living and being ready to go through the conquest of Canaan and live in the victory God has provided you is not those things. They're not those things. He says your biggest issue, and I would say in 21st century, your biggest issue is not the amount of money you don't or do have, but the attitude toward that money. See, it's not money itself but first timothy six would say it's the love of money see it's will money work for you or will you work for it will god be god of your money or will you make money into a god that's the more important issue whether you have enough or you have too much or you have excess see it's not the bill you don't know how you're going to pay it's your response to the bill that you don't know how you're going to pay that's the real issue See, your biggest issue is not some physical problem or some outside battle that you're facing physically like cancer, chronic pain, sickness, but rather the real issue, the most important issue, is an inside battle that you're facing. It's your response to it. Will you continue to worship God if he doesn't heal it? Will you continue to make him a priority in your life and be number one if he doesn't tell you that you're going to get better or you're not going to make it through this thing? See, your biggest issue and my biggest issue is not the world around us, but the world that gets within us. That's the problem. How do we handle the pressures? How do we handle the temptations? Do they push us away from God? Do we turn to other things other than God for the help and the grace and the mercy that we need? Or do we turn to Him? Are we going to be faithful to Him? Because I can tell you, and I certainly would never name names, but in my life as a pastor here and other places in my my life, I have seen how pressures Uh, work up in people's lives, at their job, in their marriages, and with their kids, and in their health. And I have seen them wane in their attendance at church. And it starts out, they came to all the services, and they stopped on Wednesdays, and they don't come on Sundays. And now they're only Sunday morning, and pretty soon it's sporadic. You know why? Because it was what was going on inside that mattered. And all that the outside things were, were bringing it to light about what was taking place. And so it would have been a temptation for Israel to think that their biggest issues and problems were all the bad things they couldn't control and all the giants that were bigger than they could possibly imagine on the outside. Whereas God says, you know, that's not the biggest problem. It's not the main thing. The main thing is, will you continue to worship me and make me the center of your life on the inside, no matter what's happening on the outside? And so he says to us, and I read the verse for you, if you look at it again, He tells them here the most important thing at the very get-go. Here's the beginning introduction of his last sermon. He says, I want to tell you the most important thing is who God is. Can you you say that? A.W. Tozer said, the most important thing about a person's life is who they think God is. Can I tell you? That's the most important question that you could ever answer tonight. Not what you're going to do on this problem or that problem, but the most important question is who do you believe God to be? And Moses says this, let me tell you what you need to know going into the promised land when you're going to go up against impregnable problems and crazy issues and people that are way bigger than you, way stronger than you. When it looks impossible, here's what you need to know. He says, I will proclaim, verse 3, the name of the Lord. And you know in scripture when God says the name of the Lord, he's talking about describing God's characteristics, his perfections, his attributes. I want to tell you what God is like. He says... I want to ascribe greatness to our God. And the first thing he says about God and his greatness and perfections, here's what he says. He says in verse 4, the rock. That's what he is. God is the rock. The rock in the Bible is a title for God. He was the one thing. In a very uncertain and unstable world, Israel was to find its stability and security in. They were going into a land where they would be the enemy. They would certainly be the minority, and everyone would be against them, and they would be called on by God to be different than everyone in the entire place that they were going. They would be the only one to worship this God. They would be the only one to dress this way, eat this way, act this way, worship this way. And God is the rock because in a very uncertain, unstable, changing world around us, he was the immovable object. He was the thing that they could place their life and found it on. Everything and everyone around them changed, but God wouldn't. He was their rock. And they were to build their lives on him. In fact, who God is was to, def- was to define who they were. His identity was to define their identity. And that's why Moses starts here. He starts, who is God? Here's what he tells you. He's a rock. And then the next number of statements are expressions of what that means. He is a God who is true. He is just. He always does right. He's righteous. You can bank on it. He doesn't cheat. He doesn't fudge. God is true to his word. And he tells all kinds of things about God because that's what you need to know. And that's why theology is not some dusty subject in some book that is hard to understand and it's actually pretty irrelevant to your entire life. No, theology is all about who God is and what that means for my life every day, including all the circumstances and situations you find yourself in tonight. So who is this God? Well, he's perfect, he's just, he's faithful, he has no iniquity, he does what is right, he says. And then look at verse number five. But that's the complete opposite of who Israel was, and can I say it nicely, who we are. But they've dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children. Why? Because they're blemished. They've had all kinds of things against their record. They're a crooked, (coughs) scoliosis is the idea, twisted generation. Why? Why? I don't have time to develop at all because we're never going to get anywhere. But the next 10 verses, he's going to rehearse the Exodus as a creation story. Let me show you verse 12 at least. It says, I'm sorry, he said verse 10, he found them in a desert land, the howling waste of the wilderness. The only other scripture in the Old Testament that describes howling waste, that Hebrew word, is Genesis 1-2, where it says the earth when God created it was without form. In other words, howling waste means nothingness. A big, flat desert, nothing. And what Moses is telling them is, listen, when God made you a nation and called you out of Egypt, he found you as slaves in the wilderness. There was nothing. You were nothing, he says. And then he uses that same analogy again. He says... And waste of the wilderness, it says, and like an eagle that stirs up its nest, and see the word in verse 11, that flutters over its young. Again, the only other time that word in Hebrew for flutter is used is the same verse, Genesis 1-2, where it says the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters in creation. And here's the idea. God says, when I made you a nation and you came out of Egypt in the Exodus, it was like a new version of creation. I made you out of nothing. You were nothing, no form, no void, and I took you and I hovered over you and, like a chicken or like an eagle in this case, it says, and its wing. It said, God, see, I tenderly made you into a nation. I brought you out. I led you. I had the fiery pillar and the and the and all at night and behind it in the evening. God said, and I fed you with angel food and manna, and I gave you water out of the rock, and I brought quails out of the sky. And God says, listen, you were my children, and I loved you. And how did you return it, he says? Look at verse 12. The Lord guided him, and there was no foreign God. You didn't do the worst thing. You didn't have idolatry back then. And here's what God says. Look what I did for you. I made you, verse 13, ride on the high places of the land. Ate the produce, the produce of the field. Say, I made it rain when you needed it in a desert. You had crops. You had in your field. You had honey out of the rock. You had oil out of the flinty. I provided all the things you needed: curds, milk, fat of lambs, rams of Bashan, and goats. The very not the finest. In the Hebrew word for finest means fat wheat. I mean healthy, strong crops. The best. He says, I gave you. You drank foaming wine from the blood of the... I mean, I gave you the best wine. I gave you the best crops, the best herds, the best animals. Listen, and what did you do, God says? Verse 15, Jeshurun is another name for Israel. It means upright one. You're supposed to be holy, but you grew fat. We'd say today fat and sassy. You grew fat and stout and and you what? It says you forsook God. He says, You forsook God who made you. And then circle it in your Bible. Here's the second use of the word rock and scoffed at the rock of your salvation. And what was behind you doing it? The biggest problem that you face. It wasn't the Canaanites or any of the other ites they had to fight. What was it? Well, you stirred God to jealousy with what? Strange gods. It was the idolatry. See, God said, I gave you, let me, let me modernize it, ready? God said, I, I put you in America as a Christian and I gave you a house, pretty nice one, And I gave you two cars to drive, and you have a job, and you have a life insurance, and you have retirement laid aside for yourself. And I gave you health, and I gave you pretty decent kids, and you got a pretty good job, and you come to a church, it stands for the truth. And I gave you, and God keeps listing all these things out. He says, see, I gave you the best. I gave you more than you deserved. God said, and I took special personal investment in you. And what did you give me back, he says? The worst. You're not dedicated You're not committed. You come when it's convenient. He says, see, what did my people do? Look at this. They sacrificed, verse 17, to demons that weren't even gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods. I mean, these gods weren't the ones that brought you out of Egypt. They didn't give you all these things. See, you never hear them talk this whole chapter. There is no talk about giants and cities and Canaanites or any of the people. No, You know what the biggest problem all the way through is? What's going on in your heart with idolatry? He says. Third time, look at verse 18. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, he says. You forgot the God who gave you birth. So I made a little formula. It goes like this Fields plus flocks equals fatness. You know what happens? They stopped loving God for himself, and they started loving him for his gifts. See, you gave me the lambs and the goats and the curds and the honey and the milk and the wheat and the... Fa- See, all the things got... So, so we, re- we skipped things like church and God and prayer and Bible study... I have to get up early to get this done and put this away and fix this boat and have this car and go over here and we do. And God gave you all these things, and you know what? They take His place, and soon He's forgotten, and we only move Him into the margins and make time for Him when we can, and forgetting all the time that God gave us all of these things. God is the one who blessed us with all these and all the other spiritual blessings beside it. And God says, "You forgot me." Now. Please, it cannot mean that they forgot who he was in their minds. It wasn't like, oh yeah, who's the God we serve? What was his name? That's not it. The idea is they forgot him functionally. They got too wrapped up with all the things that he had given them. Instead of worshiping him, they worshiped those things instead. See, God's identity stopped defining their identity. They weren't Christians first. They were in their culture first, and they forgot him. So fields and flocks equal fatness, but 21st century possessions and pleasures instead. Can I tell you tonight, honestly, when the world changes your worldview, it will always change your God view too. See, when you think it's more important to make this money and have these things in your bank account and have this kind of car and wear this name brand clothes and take this and all those things. See, when that is your priority and you really work hard and do all those things for those things, see, what is created will always change your mind about who created it. Always. Always. And in 32.18, it says, you're unmindful of the rock that bore you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. In other words, they've forgotten the origins. Oh, yeah, we exist because God brought us into existence. Oh, we exist for him. And what happens is when the world takes over, see, what happens is now he exists for us. Here's how you know that's happening in your life because you pray for something and ask God to give it to you and when he doesn't, you're angry and you're upset and you might boycott coming to church or reading your Bible. You get really angry with God. God, I asked you to change that person. I asked you to heal this. I asked you to meet that need and, and give me that bill and pay that thing for me and he doesn't come through the way you want when he wants as if you can rub the lamp and he'd come out. See, now, now it's God for you. He exists for you. Instead, see, they didn't see this happening in their lives, and they didn't see it coming on. Look at verse 30 and 31. Start with verse 28. For they are a nation void of counsel, and there is no understanding in them. If they were wise, listen, if they were, but they're not, but they don't know it they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. They would see where all this is taking them. See, but they don't. They don't see. We're ignoring God, casually approaching him, giving him enough to say, God, here's, you know, I'm at church. You know, I come and, you know, but they're not really interested in him, not really involved in him. And it says in verse 28, if they were wise, they'd understand verse 29, they would discern the latter end. How could one have chased a thousand? And this is a verse in the Psalms. God says, if you obey me, follow me, make me the center of your life, when you go to battle against people, one of you will chase a 1,000, he says. Two will put to flight 10,000. How can that be the case? And then they get exiled and sold into slavery. How does it happen when God promised this, but this is what happens? Here's what he says. You know what what took place? Unless their circlet fourth time and their rock had sold them. See, God was to be their rock, their security, their stability, their satisfaction. They were to build their life on him and around him. But what happened is they forgot him and ignored him and used him. And when that happened, it says, the rock turned to a different kind of rock. He sold him into slavery. It was a rock that dashed them to pieces instead of their enemies, it says. And can I look at verse 31? It blows my mind. For their rock, meaning the nations around them in Canaan, the ungodly people who don't know God, he says their rock is not as our rock. And here's the idea. If you don't think this is crazy what you do when you have the rock and you exchange it for this, it's like capital R, big rock, small r, little rock. He says, isn't it nuts That you can have the rock who can take care of all your enemies, supply your needs, do these things for you, make all these promises to you. You have this, but you choose this instead, he says. Do you remember back in 1975, I think his name was Gary Dahl, I think D-H-A-L. He was really, it was on a crazy whim, and his friends pushed him to do this and see if it would happen. But he sold this thing, it was called the Pet Rock. Do you remember it? In 1975, really on a whim, he made these boxes, like you put little animals in, like a turtle or something, and it had little air holes cut in it. And if you opened it up, it had straw on the inside, and then there, there would be this rock. And they set it inside with the straw around it in this box, and it had breathing holes. And it, and it came with, it was $4. And it came with a 32-page manual. I'm not lying. And it was all about, it was, it was trying to be funny to some degree, but it was all about how to take care of your pet rock. You don't have to walk it. You don't have to clean it. You don't have to do all these things, blah, 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 because it's a rock. And you got this thing, $4. Now, you'd say, like, come on, 32-page manual. You've got to be kidding me. And the first thing I asked Pastor David in the office, I go, do you remember the pet rock? He goes, that is the stupidest thing ever. Yeah, do you know how much money he made in six months? One and a half million dollars. Do you know how many $4 rocks that has to be? A lot. Four Almost 400,000 people bought this thing. Are you serious? 400,000? <laughs> I'm doing the pet shoe next. <laughs> it's crazy. Stupid, right? Stupid pet rock. What did he say? My people, they have no wisdom. Because they, they choose the pet rock instead of the rock. See, God says, I'm the real thing, capital R. He says, I can do all these things, and I will do this for you. And you know, instead, you choose this little $4 fake rock version that is ridiculous in comparison. And that's what he wants you to do, by the way. He wants you to put the rocks side by side and compare them. And later, look at the the next verse. He says, later on, he says, if I'm going to find the right verse here. He says in verse 37, last verse using the rock. Then he will say, where are their gods? Look at this. The rock, it says, in which they took refuge. In other words, here's what happened. They chose this little rock instead of the rock, God. And when it came time to fight the battles and their enemies were coming, God says this, yeah, that's your rock. Call on the rock that you have to protect you. See if he can do it. He says, you know the one that you gave the sacrifices and the drink offering and you worship this instead of me? He says, now now he's your rock. See if he can deliver you from the big giants and the cities that are coming. See if you can do it, he says. And the answer is, of course he can't. He can't. But God's people do it all the time. We think that if we could just pad our accounts and work a little more overtime and and do this, and if I could have this and and get here, and if I could... See, we put our trust in all of these things, thinking that that's going to bring us the security we're looking for. We're looking for some stability in our life. And if I could get this down, and I could change this, and I could manipulate this, see, then the waters would be calm and cool, and I'd have it together finally. And God says you can't get it from the little rock. So you trust in them, you put your life on them, you build your life around it, and God says it won't happen. It can't happen. It's only on the rock that you can build your life. The Gaithers wrote a song years ago. I won't even tell you what date because then you'll know how old I am. And the song is I Go to the Rock. Here's the questions. The song starts, tell me where, I, where do I go when there's nobody else to turn to? Who do I talk to when nobody wants to listen Who do I lean on when there's no foundation stable? I go to the rock. I know he's able. I go to the rock. I go to the rock, the refrain says, of myself. I go to the stone that the builders rejected. I run to the mountain, and the mountain stands by me. When all around me is sinking sand, on Christ the solid rock I stand. When I need a shelter, when I need a friend, I go to the rock. It's true, isn't it? I go to the rock. Everything around me is thinking, now listen, he says, it's the stone which the builders rejected. Let me tell you this. Everybody has a rock and most people's rock is not Jesus. It's the stone the builders rejected. Even religious people don't find God as their rock, most of them. He says it won't be popular, it won't be what everyone else does, but you have to keep this in mind. Their rock is not like our rock, Moses says. It's not like our rock. See, their rock is going to crumble. Their rock won't be faithful to them. Their rock isn't true. Their rock isn't just. Remember all the perfections at the beginning when he says, let me tell you how great God is? See, that's true of the rock, but not these rocks. Those rocks are not true. They're not faithful. They won't be your shelter. They won't be your friend. They'll tout those things. They'll promise them. But when you really need them to come through, they won't be there for you. Wrong rocks that we build our life on. And listen, in the horrible, teach our kids to do this. Build your life on sports, on a fantasy that you're going to be in the NFL. Build your life on education. Build your life on your career, on the money that you get, on sexual pleasure, on the friends that you have, on the autonomy from authority, including your parents. Build your rock. We even tell ourselves as parents, we're going to build our lives around our children because they are everything. And God says those are rocks that are fake. See, they don't work. You can't build your life on them. All of them are unstable and uncertain. Moses closes down the chapter in his last sermon. And he says to them in verse 39, See now that I, even I am he, God says. And there, here's the problem. See, from the very beginning, there is no other God beside me. That's the real question, isn't it? Going into Canaan, who will really be your God? It's not about the battles. It's not about the finances. It's not about the physical problems. It's not about the, it's about this. Who will be your God through it all? He says, I kill and make alive. I wound and heal. There's none greater that can deliver out of my hand. And he goes on and says, rejoice, verse 43, with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods, he says. See, the real gods, they're going to, the false gods, they're going to bow down to the real rock one day. Let me close with this. Our time is up. Moses came, verse 44, recites all the words of this song and the hearing of the people. It's a song that you need, you ever get a song in your head and you can't get it out? Stupid songs sometimes, like, I don't know where they come from, from 30 years ago. I haven't thought about it in 30, and there it is. I'm singing it. My wife thinks I'm lunatic. Here's, a, here's purposely a song. He says, I don't want you to get out. Joshua, you're the leader. Never forget this song. Sing it all the time. It's a theme song. And then I want all the children of Israel. I want you, when you're putting up your tent and tearing it down, I want you to think about this song and the words. I don't want you to forget what the real enemy is here. Don't ever forget it. How important is it, is it Moses says, verse 46, take to heart all the words I'm warning you today that you may command your children. They may be careful to do all of them. How important is it? Listen to this. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. You know what depends on what you're hearing tonight? This is your life. If you don't get this lesson down, if you don't figure out what your real enemy and your greatest problem is, it's not on the outside, it's on the inside. If you don't get that, you are going to fail. You're not going to be able to survive the conquest of Canaan in your own life. You have to have a rock. The rock. When I was a youth pastor, I ran a camp. And the senior high week, we went to whitewater rafting in Wisconsin because the camp was in Minnesota. It wasn't far away. And it was a really, really awesome, fast-moving rapids. And at the very end of it, literally the last 100 yards, there was this gigantic, and I mean as wide as this pew set, It was a huge rock, and it looked like, not just like, but enough like, a Volkswagen Beetle, the car. It was shaped like it. So the name of it was Volkswagen Rock. So they would say, and this is crazy. I don't even know if they would do this nowadays because of all the crazy safety people in this world, but they would take the raft that you were on, and there were six of us in a raft with a leader, a professional guy on the raft, and they would take you, and you go right up over the rock and in the air and then you'd land and so he tried to prep us the whole way he's saying there's these handles on the side of the raft and when you go over don't let go for anything he says don't let go and then he even said if someone goes in the water let them go that's brilliant So we're coming and you don't know you don't understand the magnitude of it so you're coming down the river and you're picking up big speed and then you see finally for the first time the rock he's talking about i'm going like are you serious we're going over that (laughs) so we went right over it literally in the air and so i was here was the guide in the very back on the right and i was next to him on the left and so you know we got four people in front of us so here's how you go like this and then all of a sudden like this because the weight is pulling you down so i'm standing like sitting like this he is trying to paddle, and I don't know why, because we are in the air. There is nothing to paddle. I'm looking at him, and he freaks me out. I drop my paddle, and I start falling forward in the air. I bounce off the person in front of us. They go to the water, and the first two people completely submerge in the raft underwater. I don't even know where they are. I fly off to the left, and I'm under the water and I'm here I am, I'm only like 25, 26, I go, this is it, I'm done. So I finally come up, and I come up, and the water is so fast, I mean, it's moving so fast, the, sh- the raft goes right by me, with only three of us left in it out of six. <laughs> and I don't know how I'm going to do it, because this is why, I go, this is it, I'm going, so here's what happens, the water's so fast, it pushes me, and it throws me on this rock. And I hold on to it. And I'm holding on for my life. I think I am anyways. It, it wasn't, but I thought I was. I'm holding on to this rock. and if, You're going to laugh at this. So I'm holding on to the rock. It's hard, the water's running right by me. I, I'm sitting there. And so pretty soon, the, the guy who is the raft guy gets out of the raft, and he swims over to me and says, you can come in. The shore's right there. I thought, I, I, you know, I needed that rock, and I didn't. Can I tell you this tonight? Don't ever think that you can go down the rapids and not have a real rock to hold on to. Because you need it. You need him. The question is, will you live like it? Will you live like it every day? Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us. You are our rock. The Bible goes on to say, you are our shield, our fortress, our buckler. You are our tower. We run into you and are safe. You're such a great stronghold for us. But yet, unfortunately, we prefer smaller rocks, fake rocks, in-your-place rocks. Forgive us. Help your people who are called by your name to live our lives individually and corporately on the rock, Jesus Christ, the only solid ground every day. Help us to that end, we pray, Master. In Jesus' name, amen.